Certainly worship consists of a lot of things, not the least of which is prayer. So we're going to go to the Lord in silent prayer. You think about the prayers that you would have the Lord to have, and then you have the great and the wonderful understanding that though we may ask amiss, we're going to get a perfect prayer to the Lord. So the important thing is to pray. So let's see what we can do. Silent prayer. Let us pray. Father, we're grateful for the privilege of being able to come together and to uh, study your word. Guide us now and direct us, for I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Ken, come and lead us in a song, please. Number 487, let's stand and sing the first and last verses. <coughs> My country is a thief, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride, from every singing. We are singing patriotic songs this morning because yesterday was Patriots Day and uh, that's uh, a wonderful thing to have in your national repertoire, if you will. That is to say, a Patriots Day. Uh, I would urge all of you and especially those out there who are in the computer world either by the podcast or our website, to check into what the Bible has to say about how you fight a war. I think from time to time we get terribly mixed up because we don't want to go by what the Bible has to say. There's already talk about sending troops here and sending troops there, and they come back uh, mangled because uh, troops in another land just hardly ever succeed. Uh, we only know one great deal of success that we had, and that was when we dropped the atomic bomb on the Japanese. Uh, and of course, they had tremendous amount of respect for us. I think I've told you the story. My squadron went to Japan on a, uh, a celebration of, uh, of, of uh, Arms, Arms, Armistice Day. And uh, they did not want to see any of the new airplanes that we had. They uh, instead wanted to see the, as they said, the Kebichi 29, the one that dropped the big bomb. So, as you know, we saved a lot of lives, both Japanese and Americans, by bombing them, uh, bombing them into the Stone Age. So we need to, again, just look and see what the Bible has to say. I'm not here to tell you I know what to do. I know nothing. I'm kind of like the German, you know, on TV. I know nothing. But uh, we have uh, certainly a lot of information. We have the doctrine of war. And we also have the doctrine of war, moral or immoral. And it tells you what what you're supposed to do as far as war is concerned. You're supposed to win it and win it quickly so you minimize your casualties. And we have a tremendous number of casualties of Americans. All you need to do is watch television and watch the uh, very, very 
sad state of affairs for some of our boys who have come back. Uh, so uh, we need to remember them in prayer. We need to remember ourselves in prayer. We need to think about how you should fight a war based upon what the Bible has to say. And I'm not here to say I know that. I just know what the Bible has to say. And I'm pleased to be able to uh, teach it. And uh, I hope that our nation will one day learn, you know, how you do fight a war. But that's up to our leadership, and we are to salute smartly to our leadership. We are not to rebel, as you well know. That's very clearly stated in the book of Romans, what you do. So uh, keep the prayers up. Tommy, of course, is in need of your prayers. I think I've told most of you how she's doing already. She's sleeping and not eating, so uh, we're trying various things uh, to uh, get her to eat. So we had some good suggestions this morning, and I'm going to stop by Randall's on the way and get some pudding, <laughs> and we're going to try that. She did drink some almond milk, which she likes, but she is basically is sleeping, and uh, she's lost a lot of weight, as you know, even before she, we found out what she had. So she has a mass on her pancreas, and, uh, but she is not, all, not in a lot of pain. Most of the pain just comes from sleeping on one side, so we move her over and over, we being my daughter, and then my granddaughter's coming to replace her. Uh, in fact, she'll be traveling today. So remember her in your prayers, traveling from Pensacola. All right, uh, with that said, uh, uh, we do have a prayer list over here to my left. Be sure and get one and use it. And by way of announcements, we will not have a prayer meeting or a Bible study on Wednesday, but you just we're just going to have to play it by ear. As far as Sunday is concerned, I do plan right now to have a service on Sunday. So, uh, Kenneth, I guess it's time for another song. Hymn number 488, Battle Hymn of the Republic. Let's stand and sing the first, third, and fourth verses.
Thank you, Kenneth. All right, now for an aspect of worship called giving. Uh, I would stress that giving is part of worship. It's uh, much a part of worship is prayer or singing or the teaching and learning of the Word. Uh, and uh, you need to understand that. You need to understand the mechanics. And I think you know we have a doctrine of giving on the Internet. We have a doctrine of giving on the podcast. And uh, feel free to take a look at it. And understand that you can give in the privacy of your mind whether you have anything to give or not. So uh, uh, with that understood, we'll have a moment of silent prayer. If you want to give, you gave. So uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. And uh, well, one other aspect of giving I better mention, if you have something to give and you can't do it cheerfully, keep it. That's the important thing to know because God loves a cheerful giver. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Silent prayer, and I'll close. Father, we are grateful for the privilege of being able to come together, use 1 John 1, 9, thus receive the teaching of the Word and be taught by God the Holy Spirit. So guide us now and direct us, for I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to shift gears today. I've been teaching eschatology for some time, and I got to thinking I suspect I pretty well have taught the events of the last days, the rapture, and the tribulation, and the second advent, and the millennium, and the great white throne, etc., so we're going to depart from that this morning and we're going to go to your lesson plan which I know you have picked up which is walking amidst the angelic conflict. And uh, the angelic conflict is important for all of us to know. Uh, I remember many years ago, I'm going to guess about 1968-69, we were all sitting over here in the fellowship hall when we were a Baptist church and we were wondering what was the, the lesson that was we had received from Nashville. They used to send out a little oh, a pamphlet of sorts, more than a pamphlet, uh, and it would, it would be your lesson, your Sunday school lesson for the, for, that, for the adults, for example. And the lesson was, you know, why did God make man? And, of course, we kicked it around and kicked it around and nobody knew and had any idea. And then the conclusion from Nashville was God needed fellowship. And if there's anything that is objectionable to me and to God and to common sense, God didn't need our fellowship. So we just kind of left it open. We just don't know why. And then when I finally uh, decided I had the gift of pastor-teacher and you people were kind enough to ordain me on October the 18th, 19, October the, I believe the 18th, 1978, uh, and I decided, well, the best thing to do is to apply to Dallas Theological Seminary. And when I did, on the application, it asked the question, do you believe in the angelic conflict? And I thought, how can I when I don't know what it is? <laughs> so uh, I then began to pursue the study of the angelic conflict. And that's why we have this lesson, Walking Amidst the Angelic Conflict. Uh, and in there, our doctrine, we have a doctrine of angelic conflict, both on the internet, and we also have one. I think, no, we don't have one on the podcast, but we do have one on the internet. But uh, if you look, at the doctrine of the angelic conflict, one of the things it says, the angelic conflict is a war between the, the fallen angels and the elect angels, and we're part of that conflict. And it's the desire of the fallen angels, you know one-third of the angels fell with Lucifer, and two-thirds of them did not fall. They're called angels. The others are called demons. And uh, they have, uh, they're, they're, they're at war with us. 
They're at war with God. They're at war with Christ. Uh, and they are there, and, and it's their design to do, as you'll see if you read the doctrine of the angelic conflict, to produce a creative, a creature, excuse me, a creature incapable of being saved. One. Two, killing the humanity of Christ. Three, getting Christ to sin. Four, keeping man from accepting Christ. And then five, causing sweeping Christian apostasy. So that's their goal. And it all, of course, uh, culminated in a plan, <clears throat> a war, if you will, and that we are in a war right now. Demons do not want you to hear the Word of God. They do not want you to, uh, if you're an unbeliever and you're out there somewhere, <clears throat> and you haven't believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, they don't want you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, so uh, the doctrine of walking amidst the angelic conflict is an excellent metaphor. We're all walking in this particular world of ours amidst an angelic conflict. In other words, there are fallen angels out there who uh, have not uh, decided to stay on positive signals and accept God. So they fail and they cannot recover because they are now fallen. They're not like the fallen human who from time to time may fall, but he can always recover by rebound if he's a believer, and by salvation, by faith alone in Christ alone. So walking makes for an excellent metaphor. So with our lesson plan, let's take a look at what we've got. First of all, it's an excellent metaphor, walking. It's peripateo, by the way, in the Greek. And uh, it's... Uh, uh, and has an excellent physical metaphor in time, and that is the, the young child who's learning to walk. In other words, if you watch a young child, and as they walk, they will actually start to fall, and they'll catch themselves with their leg, and then uh, that procedure continues on and on. And that makes, again, for the, for the metaphor, uh, which... Uh, is like in Christianity. We fall when we sin and we catch ourselves with 1 John 1, 9. So we are to walk in time as ambassadors for Christ. We were called in eternity past to produce divine good. We may, however, produce or not produce. It all depends on our attitude toward God's protocol. And God's protocol is expressed in the Word of God itself. And uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, I have provided for you uh, in uh, your lesson plan. We know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, generally speaking, most of us have memorized that. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But then we sometimes forget verse 10, which follows naturally. Verse 9, and it says, For we are His workmanship. Who is the we? That's us. Who is the His? That's God. We are God's workmanship. And we were created in Christ Jesus, by faith alone in Christ alone, unto good works, to produce good works. And then we have the statement, Which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Foreordained, way back yonder before time was, he knew various works, good works, good deeds, if you will, divine good uh, that we should produce in time. And then it says we should walk in them. And uh, the word walk there is again peripateto, as noted. However, it is in, the, in what we call the subjunctive mood. Now in the Greek, you have present tense, active, present tense, and then you have active, then you have imperative, then you have subjunctive, and uh, of course, uh, and we have uh, 
the subjunctive is the key here. The should is how you translate the to-be verb, or any verb for that matter. In this case, peripateo is in the subjunctive, which means maybe you will and maybe you won't. In other words, you don't have to walk in the works that God foreordained. And I often say um, that when I get to heaven, uh, I'm going to take a look at all of the works that I should have produced in time, some of which I did, some of which I did not. And I think that's true of everybody. And we may or may not walk in them. We may not do the things that God way back yonder in eternity past uh, saw that we should do. Now the only way that you can do that, of course, is to take in the Word of God, take in the Word of God and grow in His grace, and the Word of God will produce. That's the key. We name our sin back to God, we take in the Word, we produce. We name our sin back to God, we take in the Word and we produce. And the production actually is the Bible doctrine that's in our soul. So Christ and all believers were elected by the Father after seeing the entire timeline and all choices made. He saw your choices. He saw my choices on the timeline, though toward time was. And He chose us. And that's what election means. That's what foreordination, foreordination means. So salvation then is a direct result of faith alone in Christ alone. A failure to believe, of course, results in eternal damnation. But many scriptures uh, teach this age-old truth. And I have provided for you before the invitation. I got to thinking, you know, I give the invitation at the end of each message, and I think I'm going to break my rule and give them give a few scriptures in advance. And as I do that, uh, I'm remembering James Franklin Cooper who told me one time, Colonel James Franklin Cooper, who told me, he said, you know, Jerry, your, your memorization of various scriptures is a real asset to your uh, messages. And he said, I just wish someday you wouldn't put on paper those things that you have committed to memory, which you use so well as you preach the Word of God. And I said, well, why do you say that, James Franklin? And he said, uh, because I'm going to go to Gatesville, I believe, and I'm going to have the opportunity to speak to my family. Uh, And uh, I want to be able to tell them unequivocally, how do you get saved? He said, I've never told them, and I want to be sure and do that. He said, so would you record these for me? And of course I did, and I saved them in my computer uh, under his name. And so I have provided those for you in this lesson plan. So here we go. So if you're out there and you haven't believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, or you're in here and you haven't believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to do that. And it's our job to present the claims of Christ whenever we can, to whomever we can, when they want it. Be ready, as the Scripture says, to give an answer to anyone who asketh you anything concerning the hope that is in you. Well, let's take a look, first of all, at uh, Christ speaking to Nicodemus. You remember old Nicodemus. He started out as an unbeliever, like all of us, and in Christ, uh, he encountered Christ, and Christ provided him a number of Scriptures, and he walked away an unbeliever. Then we know as we study the man, we also know that he became a member of the Sanhedrin. And he began to lean toward the Lord Jesus Christ because one of the things that he says to the Sanhedrin is, why are you against this man so vehemently? You haven't even called him before you and had him present his case as we would any individual. Uh, So we can see him making a turn making a change, and then we find it toward the end of, well, after the, the Lord had been crucified and, and He had been resurrected, uh, we find Nicodemus and uh, a, a friend of his going before Pontius Pilate to ask for the body 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's interesting because there he is now before Pontius Pilate with his good friend, this, the uh, silent disciple, if you will, as I like to call him, the two of them. So he apparently made a change and he became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we could see a man's life changing uh, as he, they both appeared, the silent believer and Nicodemus himself. All right, uh, I'm going to read then the message of the Lord Jesus Christ to again Nicodemus. Beginning in John chapter 3, verse 14, reading through verse 18. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then the famous, famous, famous verse, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God sent His Son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth on Him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So we find then that he is unable to believe at this particular point in time. Now let's go to, well, let's first look at, I don't have it there, but John chapter 11 verse 1 said, He came unto his own, but his own received him not. That would be Israel. But notice verse 12. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. And then John 3.36, again, our Lord speaking, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth upon him. So if you have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, it's quite clear the wrath of God abideth on you, so it's time to do it right now. Now notice verse 24 of John 5. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word, and everybody is going to hear the word of God. You do not have to worry about someone going to hell because they didn't hear. Because the glorious gospel that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men. And that's Titus 1.11. And believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. So very clear. He came unto his own, but uh, his own received him not, but as many as did, as we will see, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. All right, now let's take a look at John 6.29. John answered and said unto them, this is the work of God that you believe on Him whom He hath sent. And the Jews asked the question, how and what is the work of God? And Jesus answered and said, this is the work of God that ye believe on Him whom He hath sent. And then John 6.40, what is the will of God? This is the will of Him that sent me, said Christ, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on Him may have everlasting life. And I will raise Him up at the last day. Again, a reference to, of course, eschatology again, and you know about the last day, so I'm not going to go into that. Then John 6.47 goes on to say, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on Me hath everlasting life. So what is the key? What do we see that's common here? Believeth, believeth, believeth. Faith alone in Christ alone. And then John 8, 24, I said, Therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins, for if ye believe not that I am He, ye shall die in your sins. Quite an admonition. And then a wonderful story, and one that uh, uh, is very key in my life because I had a cousin a distant cousin who was uh, had written a book because he was an outstanding Navy SEAL and uh, came to me one day while I was on a machine at the fitness center working away 
and he came to me and he said, Jerry, is there anywhere in the Bible where Christ said He was the Son of God or where He said He was the uh, uh, not just the Son of God, but uh, uh, the, the, the Christ Himself? And I said, oh yeah. Uh, several places. I said. Uh, then he said, uh, "Well, could you email me that?" I said, "No, but my wife will." And I said, "I'll tell her to email you." And uh, here's one that I sent it. And you'll remember the story about the blind. You remember the blind guy who uh, they came to him and they said, "Who gave you back your sight?" He, and he said, "I don't know." Well, I do want, I do know one thing. Formerly I was blind and now I can see. And then we know that uh, uh, they didn't like that. They being the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so they kicked him out of the synagogue. Said you can't come back. And uh, Jesus heard about that. And so Jesus went to find him. And Jesus did find him. And I'm going to read you the little story short oh four verses it looks like or five four John 9 35 36 37 and 38 Jesus heard that they had cast him out and when he had found him he said unto him dost thou believe on the son of God he answered and said who is he Lord that I might believe on him and Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. So that answers two interesting questions. One of them, of course, is here's a place where Christ did say he was the Son of God. And it only takes one, but there are several, and I have given you those before. And I have them in my, on my internet under a special category so I can go and retrieve them. But uh, another interesting point here is you hear people say that if you're not a believer, then you can't be healed. Well, here's a case of an unbeliever who was healed. The Lord uh, healed him of his blindness when he was an unbeliever. And then he went and got him and told him, you know, you're looking at him, the Son of God. So we know that my cousin got the message and uh, the reason he wanted it, by the way, is because he had a Muslim friend who uh, had written a book, and uh, piece. actually he had written a document, that's all I can really say. He had written a document, and in the document he wanted to be, his, his children and grandchildren to know that Christ never said he was the Son of God. And so uh, he said that in his little write-up. And then he told my cousin, and uh, I gave him about five different scriptures where Christ said he was either the Son of God uh, or the Christ and uh, the Savior. So uh, that's why it's interesting to me, and I hope you found that interesting. And then we have old Paul and Silas. You remember they went to Philippi, and they... Uh, they got in trouble, and so they were placed in the in the jailhouse, and uh, they were were there, and they were singing hymns, and an angel came and opened up the doors of the jail, and uh, the jailer was terribly frightened because back in those days, if you were given someone to guard, and they got away, you got their punishment. And of course, Paul and Silas, Silas were, uh, they were set up for capital punishment. So naturally, the guard was frightened. And so the guard came and looked in because the doors were open. And there sat Paul and Silas. They had not left. And uh, he was quite encouraged. But he asked the question, what must I do to be saved? And here was the answer. We just simply had, and they said. So I don't know if it was Paul. I don't know if it was Silas. I got a hunch it was Paul uh, because he, he tended to, of course, take the lead. 
And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. And of course, we know from the Scripture, as it continued, they went to his house and witnessed to his servants and his, I suspect. But we know that he witnessed to the family, and they were all saved. So a wonderful story in, in Philippi. Now let's go to Paul again in Romans chapter 4, verse 5. This is one of those unusual ones. You need to read 1 through 6, actually. But it says, To him that worketh not, now that's someone who doesn't do any good works, but to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Isn't that great? His faith is counted for righteousness, though he didn't produce any works. For by grace are you saved through faith. We started this situation with that particular verse. And uh, not by works of righteousness, but by faith alone in Christ alone. All right, and then we go to Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 22, and we're going to read through verse 24. And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus from the dead, Jesus our Lord. All right, and then on the next page you have Romans ten thirteen. An emphatic statement. Very emphatic. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then Galatians 3.22, we've studied that book. But the Scripture hath concluded all under sin that the promise of faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. And of course, the big problem in Galatia, you'll remember, was you had some people who came from James in Jerusalem who were saying, you have to keep the law to be saved, you have to keep the law to be spiritual. And uh, it all summarized quite well in the end of the second chapter. For I am crucified with Christ, and nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. All right, and then old uh, Paul writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on Him to everlasting life. Faith alone in Christ alone. Hebrews 10.39 For we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Now in the book of Hebrews, it's written by some anonymous writer, we don't really know who, but we know when, 68 A.D. approximately, uh, what we call circa 68. Uh, and uh, some say, you know, it was Paul, and some say it was some other guy. You know, they all come up with different names. But uh, it was written at a time just before the destruction of Israel, just the destruction of the temple, just before the Jews were all run out of the Holy Land. Uh, into the fifth cycle of discipline, which is where we find them today, scattered all over the world, uh, because they had refused to give up the law and the keeping of the law and the going inside of the temple. And so God said, I've sent you person after person after person telling you to stop that. Get into the local church, the grace churches, the Christian churches and leave the law alone. And of course they wouldn't do it, so God punished them and punished them royally. It was a horrible thing. That's where you have Josephus writing the history of the defeat of the Jews. Uh, and of course, uh, as you know, it was not a pleasant time for Israel. 
Now let's go and see what old Peter has to say in 1 Peter 2, 6 and 7. Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him, he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. And you remember in our study of First Peter, He's writing to Jews in what we call today Turkey. And uh, it was Peter's time to become finally the apostle to the Jew. And then in 1 John 5, 5, one you really need to put away because if you get over there in the book of the Revelation, and it starts telling you about this person and that person and what they're going to get and how they're going to get rewarded because they overcame, they overcame... Uh, you're going to need to know, well, who is he that overcometh? And like all Scripture, it has to be studied categorically. And notice what First John 5, 5, long before, of course, Revelation was written. Who is he that overcometh the world? All right, there we got it. Who is he that overcometh the world? And so you have to study the Bible categorically. Remember, you can't just pick and choose and go here and there. Uh, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. Notice 1 John 5, 5. Memorize it, know it, and believe it. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. And then dropping down to John five ten, He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar because he believeth not the record that God gave us his Son. And then 1 John 5.13, we had 5.5, we had 5.10, now we have 5.13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. All right, now let's go to the angelic conflict. God in His perfection has declared that man is an important creature in His plan to resolve the angelic conflict. How important is that? I cannot describe how important is that. Um, it is beyond my description. But right now, there are angels looking at you, both fallen and elect, and uh, they're interested in knowing what are you thinking? Uh, are you... Uh, Paying attention? Uh, are you believing what the Scriptures have to say about faith alone in Christ alone? And uh, that's, of course, important for each and every one of us to realize as we walk about, as we walk outside, as we go out there and see the firemen who showed up earlier. Uh, we're all being witnesses in the angelic conflict. So we walk as witnesses in the appeal phase of the angelic conflict. I like what the colonel has done. He's called it the appeal phase of the angelic conflict. In other words, Satan fell. Satan was convicted uh, of uh, refusing to follow God's plan. Uh, so now then, we're, he has been sentenced, but the sentence hasn't been carried out. The sentence of Satan and his fallen demons will not be carried out until eschatology unfolds. All the things we've been studying about. Remember we talked about how the sentence would be carried out at the end of the millennium when they are released and they make one last attempt to get rid of Christ. And after that, they are then sentenced. That's when the sentence is carried out. But right now, they are on the what do they call the row where you, you know, the row where you're waiting death, you know, and uh, uh, that's where they are, and they're appealing, they're appealing because they're saying, well, uh, wait a minute, God, you can't, you can't condemn us to everlasting fire, uh, because uh, we're not like you. I mean, you are powerful, you are strong, you, uh, what you say goes, and uh, what you do gets done whether or not uh, 
man could possibly do that. Well, you're so powerful. Uh, but we are not as powerful as you are, and so we, we have an excuse. And so God said, well, I'm going to show you something. You say that you have an excuse because you're not as powerful as I am. Well, I'm going to make someone lower than an angel. You ever wonder why Christ was said to be lower than an angel in the book of Hebrews? Very important. He was made lower than an angel because he's proving to the angels that they don't have an excuse. You ever wonder why you're not as powerful as an angel? Because you're made lower than an angel also. And you're here to demonstrate to the angels that they are without excuse. So they're in the appeal phase. Uh, judge was an appellate judge and people would appeal various cases to him and he would, uh, uh, first he'd wake up his partner over there, but then he would uh, go and uh, make a judgment. Uh, that's a private joke for the judge and I about his partner. But uh, there was a judge that uh, we both know who sometimes fell asleep during the uh, court process. But uh, the appeal phase is going on right now. And uh, angels are looking at you and they have no excuse because, my goodness, we have flu. Uh, we have wives who are sick and break our heart. We have all sorts of problems. We have wives with headaches that won't get cured. We have uh, all sorts of problems in time. Uh, when I was playing ball, sometimes I didn't get a base hit every time, you know, so that was bad, you know, but uh, and on and on and on, we have our own troubles. Uh, when I got released from the Orioles, well, that was a terrible day. They gave me a plane ticket. When I got bit by Pittsburgh, that was a good day, but then they didn't send me out right away, and so that was a bad day. So we all have our own little troubles, and uh, we are operating in, of course, a condition that's lower than the angels. And so they're without excuse, and that's what we mean when we say the appeal phase of the angelic conflict. So now you know about the appeal phase. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. All right, we walk as witnesses in the appeal phase of the angelic conflict. All right, now 6.1 on page 3 in my lesson plan. Angels have the ability to observe humans, both their thoughts and their actions. Notice John 2, 3, And the Lord said unto Satan, This is a scene that appeared that uh, took place in heaven. Uh, actually, we have two of them. We have two angelic convocations. This is a record of one of them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Well, here came Satan. He had all of his angels called together. And I suspect we're talking about all of the, the elect angels. And God is speaking to them. So Satan took that opportunity to arrive in heaven and the Lord spoke to him as he saw him come up. Now I like what Colonel Theme says as he interprets the Hebrew there in the book of Job, chapter 2, verse 3. He interprets that as being a very uh, arrogant approach. In other words, he showed up and he was going to speak to God about old Job. He says, and the Lord said unto Satan, as he saw him come up the hill, so to speak, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil, and still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him with cause? So he had first attempted to destroy him without cause, and uh, then uh, Satan comes up and said, well, that's right, you did take some things from him, but let me tell you this, if you strike him with shingles, and you strike him with this, and you strike him with that, and you strike him with this terrible, terrible malady, his flesh, in other words, he'll turn against you. You watch. And of course, God did. And of course, he didn't turn against him. See, God only had one thing against Job, and if you read the book, 
you'll find out what it is. But basically, it's your questioning me, Job. Don't question me. Don't even question why. Just accept it. Because I'm God and you're a man. And that's the way it should be. Difficult as that may sound, people, and we all know how difficult that is. We all want to question God from time to time. Why is this happening to me? Why? And of course, you have to understand that's not your job to question God. Your job is to, so to speak, as my mother would say, do or die. All right, the angelic conflict then is a war being fought between God and Satan. Satan's purpose was originally to cause Christ to sin and reject God's plan. But since that plan failed, Satan switched strategies and has now directed his attention toward God's elect. In other words, he took Christ up on the mountain, you know, and he gave him at least four uh, problems. And he was faithful to not fall for Satan's line. You'll remember all the four that are listed in the book of Matthew. And uh, now he said, well, Christ pays, so I'm going, to hit, I'm going for Kim. I'm going to Wanda. I'm going for Jerry. I'm going for Kimberly. I'm going for et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm going to attack them and see how they do under pressure because Christ passed the test. So now I'm going to look at his elect. So Christ took away Lucifer's excuse and excuses of those angels who followed him in the rebellion. Now the apparent, well, excuse apparently went something like this. I as a creature angel so inferior to you, members of the Trinity, I could not help myself. After all, I am not like you. Well, a natural question often asked is, why is there life on planet Earth amidst all the many galaxies? And I hope I have answered that by just telling you there is an angelic conflict. And we are part of that conflict. It is our job to, in fact, uh, uh, hold the line, so to speak. In other words, keep on trucking, if you will. So in a book published in February 2000 entitled Rare Earth, two professors, one was named Ward and the other Brownlee, specializing in geological sciences, mass extinctions, astronomy, and astrobiology. They have concluded that there is most likely no advanced life elsewhere in the universe, only here on planet Earth. And they have written, and I'm going to quote now, the Earth's... Now, why am I doing this? Well, I'm doing this because the angels chose to fall and go to planet Earth. You'll find that in the book of Isaiah. You'll find that in the book of Psalms. They chose to go to planet Earth. Why planet Earth? Because it's the only place where life can be, that we can withstand life. Now, granted, Satan, after the rapture of the church, no doubt can explain things away and bring all sorts of manner of extraterrestrial life, I'm sure, to planet Earth. But as of right now, I'll just read you what the scientists have to say. You know, uh, as a... Uh, you've got to follow the science. You know, you have to follow the science. And uh, the science says as follows according to these very famous scientists. The Earth's evolutionary achievements can be attributed to the following critical factors. Our optimal distance from the sun, the positive effects of the moon's gravity on our climate, plate tectonic and continental drift, the right types of metals and elements, ample liquid water, maintenance of the correct amount of internal heat to keep surface temperatures within a habitable range, and a gaseous planet the size of Jupiter, Jupiter to shield Earth from catastrophic meteoric bombardment. Then they go on to write, and we skip a few sentences, Conventional wisdom is wrong. We finally said out loud what so many have thought to be so for a long period of time. Quoting again, Earth is simply just too special, the result of myriad physical conditions missing from most of the universe with just enough time and circumstances to let complicated life arise. We consider it to be random chance and luck, said Brownlee, 
We want there to be lots of life out there. But as scientists, here's what the evidence in our short lives and our, our narrow imaginations tell us. Perhaps our conclusions are a result of our failed imaginations. So these men of science claim to lack imagination, but the truth lies not in their failure to imagine, but their failure to believe in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1, 1 and 2, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was, and you'll remember that word was is Hayah in the Hebrew, can be translated two ways, either was or became. So uh, it's there for you. Notice Hayah can be translated was or became. And what did it become? Without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Now in my doctrine of creation, uh, you will see that I have concluded that I can't find any other event other than the fall of Satan for the earth, which was created perfect to fall. In other words, to become in the Hebrew, tohu vabohu. All right, Genesis 1-2 tells us in corrected translation that the earth became desolate without form and void because and became rather than was, is the better translation given Isaiah 45, 18. Now, the Scripture never makes a mistake. The Scripture is always accurate. The absolute nature of Scripture is one of the tenets of uh, theism, our theism. And Isaiah 45, 18 makes a statement where we find God creating out of absolutely nothing a perfect heaven and earth. In other words, he did not beat around the proverbial bush. The earth was not created without form and void, according to Isaiah 45.18. And if 45.18 is right, then you know the translation of Hayah can't be was, that he created it, that tohu vabohu. No, he created it perfect, and it became tohu vabohu. So it became without form and void a long time ago in eternity past. As we will see, the event triggering the earth becoming without form and void was the fall of Satan and his very subaltern, in other words, the demons. Now let me quote you. Isaiah 45, 18. You'll find it on page 5. For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, and the making there is the same Hebrew word bara. He created it out of absolutely nothing. He had to establish it. He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. And then the, the conclusive statement, I am the Lord and there is none else. So the angelic conflict is related to the creation of the earth and it's becoming worthless that which occurred between the perfect creation and the becoming tohu vabohu has been a long-established hypothesis held by many grace folks such as Lewis Perry Chafer, John Walvard, John Pentecost, Colonel R.B. Thieme, Charles Ryrie, Feinberg, Hal Lindsey, and many others. So, so much then for... Isaiah 14, 12, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, you which did weaken the nations? So the fall of Lucifer, taking one-third of the angels with him, occurred between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. This position is further substantiated by Isaiah 14, 13 and Psalm 48-2, where Satan chooses earth as the battlefield for the angelic conflict. Read with me first of all Isaiah and then we'll look at Psalm 48 too and then we will close. Isaiah 14, 13 and 14. For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend unto heaven. This is talking to Satan. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. And notice we got a definition of sides of the north found in Psalm 48.2. Beautiful for situation, 
the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. So after the fall, God restored earth to perfection in six literal days. And we have a doctrine of restoration. So we have a doctrine of creation, which you may feel free to get a copy of. Uh, we have a, a doctrine of, uh, again, restoration, uh, which we have a doctrine of. So, so much then for our lesson this morning. I did want to change a little bit. I thought I'd overdone eschatology since I know most of you know all about eschatology. So let's dedicate the closing moments of the service to a very brief salvation invitation because, boy, did I ever, thanks to James Franklin, uh, come up with a wonderful series of verses with reference to how do you get saved? How do you get saved? And we had, I think, roughly, oh, I forget the number, but because I did recite some by memory that are not in your lesson plan. So it's faith alone in Christ alone. So all you've got to do is tell God the Father, I'm believing on God the Son and on the promise of the Word, you will be saved. I'll now provide our benediction. Father, we're grateful for the privilege of being able to come together and to study Your Word. I would certainly ask that God the Holy Spirit would take that which I have presented Make it real in order that we might grow in your wonderful grace and become more like our Lord and Savior, even Jesus the Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen.